If you just listened to the introduction, then welcome back. If you haven't listened to the introduction, then welcome. If you're getting ready to go to sleep, feel free to get comfy, have a wriggle around, flip your pillow over a thousand times, and if you've got your blanket on the wrong way, then just bite the bullet and turn it over. So I just wanted to give a little disclaimer that I'm probably not going to read this book in the normal uh, sing-song pattern that you would expect from a book because, like I mentioned in my introduction, the idea is not to find it too interesting. Um, and on top of that, this book is translated from French, so the flow is not exactly predictable all of the time. I never actually read this passage before, it was recommended to me by a friend who is a bookstore owner, who was very generous to help me out with suggestions, and I only read some of it because thought it would be interesting to discover it along with you guys. But what I've read so far, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how we so often think that we're the only one to have a very particular type of experience. And when it comes to sleep and waking up, often you don't even those experiences into words because they're so fleeting and we often forget them or they're gone very quickly so you just can't actually put it into words what you experience well, I find this passage really encapsulates a feeling that I get fairly often I also get it um when I leave the cinema sometimes, like, I don't know about you, but, um, yeah, if, if, if it's a movie that, well, to be honest, I don't even necessarily have to have enjoyed the movie, but I just sometimes get really into the character and theme of the movie, especially if it's very outside of my norm, or if it's, you know, like a an experience that I would love to have and I'm probably not going to so I don't know about you but like you ever like I don't know watch a movie where they're Irish bank robbers or something and you can't get the Irish accent out of your brain when you leave or you just have that feeling of being a bit of a badass even when you're not that's what this passage reminds me of getting so absorbed into you know the creative, imaginary, subconscious world that it takes you a moment to snap out of it. So, hopefully that's got you all settled. And this is my first time using this program, so I don't even know if I can switch to another um, app while we're still recording, but we'll find out. And of course, the page has disappeared. <laughs> I'm 
I'm able to get that dark out. Got a lovely... See, this is what I like about these sorts of podcasts. It's even the... Um, even the quirks and the mistakes kind of work, you know? Um, it adds a bit of lack of predictability. Also, I just realised that this book, well, the ebook was released March 21st, 2009, which is interesting because it's not long after that right now. Anyway, the book is called The Swan's Way, Remembrance of Things Past, Volume 1 by Marcel Proust. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but I'm fairly sure it's Proust. And it was produced by Eric Eldridge and David Ritchie. Swan's Way, Remembrance of Things Past. Volume 1 by Marcel Proust Translated from the French by C.K. Scott Moncrief Moncrief? Moncrief? New York, Henry Holden Company, 1922 For a long time, I used to go to bed early Sometimes when I'd put out my candle, my eyes would close so quickly I had not even time to say I'm going to sleep. And half an hour later, the thought that it was time to go to sleep would awaken me. I would try to put away the book, which I imagined was still in my hands, and blow out the light. I had been thinking all the time while I was asleep of what I had just been reading. But my thoughts had run into a channel of their own, until I myself seemed actually to have become the subject of my book church, a quartet, the rivalry between Francois I and Charles V. This impression would persist for some moments after I was awake. It did not disturb my mind, but it lay like scales upon my eyes and prevented them from registering the fact that the candle was no longer burning. Then it would begin to seem unintelligible that the thoughts of a former existence must be a reincarnate spirit. The subject of my book would separate itself from me, leaving me free to choose whether I would form part of it or no. And at the same time, my sight would return and I would be astonished to find myself in a state of darkness. Pleasant and restful enough for the eyes, and even more perhaps for the mind, to which it appeared incomprehensible, without a cause. A matter dark indeed. I would ask myself what o'clock it could be. I could hear the whistling of trains, which now nearer and now far off, punctuating the distance like the note of a bird in a forest, shrewed me in perspective the deserted countryside through which a traveller would be hurrying toward the nearest station. The path that he followed being fixed forever in his memory by the general excitement due to being in a strange place, to doing unusual things, to last words of conversation, to farewells exchanged beneath an unfamiliar lamp which echoed still in his ears amid the silence of the night. 
into the delightful prospect of being once again at home. I would lay my cheeks gently against the comfortable cheeks of my pillow, as plump and blooming as the cheeks of babyhood, or I would strike a match to look at my watch. Nearly midnight. The hour when an invalid who had been obliged to start on a journey had to sleep in a strange hotel awakens in a moment of illness and sees with glad relief a streak of daylight shooing under his bedroom door. The joy of joys it is morning. The servants will be about in a minute. He can ring and someone will come to look after him. The thought of being made comfortable gives him strength to endure his pain. He is certain he heard footsteps. They come nearer and die away. The ray of light beneath his door is extinguished. It is midnight. Someone has turned out the gas. The last servant has gone to bed. He must lie all night in agony with no one to bring him any help. I would fall asleep, and often I would be awake again for short snatches, when only just long enough to hear the regular creaking of the wainscot, or to open my eyes to settle the shifting kaleidoscope of darkness, to stay to savor in an instant, to savor in an inst- instantaneous flash of perception, the sleep which lay heavy upon the furniture, the room the whole surroundings of which I formed but an insignificant part, and whose unconsciousness I should very soon return to share. Or perhaps while I was asleep I had returned without the least effort to an earlier stage of my life, now forever outgrown, and had come under the thrall of one of my childish terrors, such as that old terror of my great-uncle pulling my curls, which was effectively dispelled on the day, the dawn of a new era to me on which they were finally cropped from my head. I had forgotten that event during my sleep. I remembered it again immediately. I had succeeded in making myself wake up to escape my great-uncle's fingers. Still, as a measure of precaution, I would bury the whole of my head in the pillow before returning to the world of dreams. Sometimes, too, just as Adam and Eve created... (laughs) Sometimes, too, just as Eve was created from a rib of Adam, so a woman would come into existence while I was sleeping, conceived from some strain in the position of my limbs, warmed by the appetite that I was on the point of gratifying. She it was, I imagined, who offered me the gratification. My body, conscious that its own warmth was permeating hers, strive to become one with her, and I would awake. The rest of humanity seemed very remote in comparison with this woman, whose company I had left but a moment ago. My cheek was still warm with her kiss, my body bent beneath the weight of hers, if as would sometimes happen. She had the appearance of some woman whom I had known in waking hours, I would abandon myself altogether to the sole quest of her, like people who set out on a journey to see with their own eyes some city that they have always longed to visit, and imagine that they can taste in reality what has charmed their fancy. 
and then gradually the memory of her would dissolve and vanish until I had forgotten the maiden of my dream. When a man is asleep, he has in a circle round him the chain of the hours, the sequence of the years, the order of the heavenly host. Instinctively, when he wakes, he looks to those, and in an instant reads off his own position on the earth's surface and the amount of time that it elapsed during his slumbers. But this ordered procession is apt to grow confused and to break its ranks. Suppose that towards morning, after a night of insomnia, sleep descends upon him while he is reading, quite a different position from that in which he normally goes to sleep. He is only to lift his arm to arrest the sun and turn it back in its course. And at the moment of waking he will have no idea of the time, but will conclude that he has just got to bed. Or suppose that he gets drowsy in some even more abnormal position, sitting in an armchair, say, after dinner. Then the world will fall topsy-turvy from its orbit. The magic chair will carry him at full speed through time and space, and when he opens his eyes again, he will imagine that he went to sleep months earlier in some far distant country. But for me it was enough if, in my own bed, my sleep was so heavy and completely to relax my consciousness, for then I lost all sense of the place in which I had gone to sleep, and when I awoke at midnight not knowing where I was, could not be sure at first who I was. I had only the most rudimentary sense of existence, such as may lurk and flicker in the depths of an animal's consciousness. I was more destitute of human qualities than the cave dweller. But then the memory, not yet of the place in which I was, but of various other places where I had lived, and might now very possibly be, would come like a rope let down from heaven to draw me out of the abyss of not being, from which I could never have escaped by myself. In a flash, I would traverse and surmount centuries of civilization, and out of a half-visualized succession of oil lamps, followed by shirts which turned down collars, put together by degrees the competent parts of my ego. Perhaps the immobility of things that surround us is forced upon them by our conviction, that they are themselves and not anything else, and by the immobility of our conceptions of them. For it always happened that when I awoke like this, my mind struggled in an unsuccessful attempt to discover where I was. Everything would be moving round me through the darkness. Things, places, years. My body, still too heavy with sleep to move, make an effort to construe the form which its tiredness took, as an orientation of its various members, so as to induce, from that where the wall lay and the furniture stood, to piece together and to give a name to the house in which it must be living. Its memory, the composite memory of its ribs, knees and shoulder blades, offered it a whole series of rooms in which it at one time or another slept, while the unseen walls kept changing, adapting themselves to the shape of each successive room, that it remembered 
whirling madly through the darkness. And even before my brain lingering in the consideration of when things had happened and of what they had looked like, I'd collected sufficient impressions to enable it to identify the room, it, my body, and to recall from each room in succession what the bed was like, where the doors were, how daylight came in at the windows, whether there was a passage outside, what I had had in my mind when I went to sleep, and I found there when I awoke. The stiffened side underneath my body would, for instance, in trying to fix its position, imagine itself to be lying face to the wall in a big bed with a canopy. And at once I would say to myself, why it must have gone to sleep after all. Mama never came to say goodnight, for I was in the country with my grandfather. He died years ago, and my body, the side upon which I was lying, loyally preserving from the past an impression which my mind should never have forgotten. Brought back before my eyes the glimmering flame of the nightlight and its bowl of bohemian glass, shaped like an urn and hung by chains from the ceiling, and a chimney piece of sienna marble in my bedroom at Combray, in my great aunt's house, in those far distant days, which at the moment of waking each present without being clearly penned, but would become plainer in a little while, when I was properly awake. Then would come up the memory of a fresh position. The wall stood away in another direction. I was in my room, in the country. Good heavens, it must have been ten o'clock. They will have finished dinner. I must have overslept myself in the little nap which I always take when I come in for my walk, before dressing for the evening. How many years have now elapsed since the Combray days, when coming in from the longest and latest walks, I would still be in time to see the reflection of sunset glowing in the panes of my bedroom window. It was a very different kind of existence a different kind of pleasure that I now derive from taking walks only in the evenings, from visiting by moonlight the roads on which I used to play as a child, in the sunshine or the bedroom, in which I shall presently fall asleep, instead of dressing for dinner, from afar off I can see it, as we return from our walk with its lamp shining through the window, a solitary beacon in the night. These shifting and confused gusts of memory never lasted for more than a few seconds. It often happened that in my spell of uncertainty as to where I was, I did not distinguish the successive theories of which that uncertainty was composed, any more than when we watch a horse running. We isolate the successive positions of its body as they appear upon a bioscope. But I had seen first one and the other of the rooms in which I had slept during my life, in the end, I would revisit them all the long course of my waking dream. In rooms in winter, where on going to bed I would at once bury my head in a nest, built up out of the most diverse materials, the corner of my pillow, the top of my blanket, a piece of shawl at the edge of my bed, and the copy of an evening paper 
all of which things I would contrive with the infinite patience of birds building their nests, to cement into one whole, rooms wherein a keen frost, I would feel the satisfaction of being shut in from the outer world, like the sea swallow which builds at the end of a dark tunnel, and is kept warm by the surrounding earth. By the fire keeping in all night, I would sleep wrapped up, as if it were in a great cloak of snug and savoury air, shot with the glow of the logs which would break out again in a flame, a sort of alcove without walls, capable of dug out of the heart of room itself, a zone of heat whose boundaries were constantly shifting and altering in temperature, as gusts of air ran across them to strike freshly upon their face. From the corners of the room, or from parts near the window, or far from the fireplace, which had therefore remained cold, or rooms in summer where I would delight to feel myself a part of the warm evening, where the moonlight striking upon the half-open shutters would throw down the foot of bed, which enchant a ladder where I would fall asleep, as it might be in the open air. Like a titmouse which the breeze keeps poised in the focus of a sunbeam. Sometimes the Louis room, so cheerful that I could never feel really unhappy, even on my first night in it. That room where the slender columns which lightly support its ceiling would part ever so gracefully, to indicate where the bed was and to keep it separate. Sometimes again that little room with the high ceiling, hollowed in the form of a pyramid out of two separate stories partly walled in with a mahogany in which from the first moment my mind was drugged by the unfamiliar scent of flowering grasses, convinced of the hostility of the violet curtains and of the insolent indifference of a clock that chattered on at the top of its voice, as though I were not there. On a strange and pitiless mirror with square feet, which stood across one corner of the room, cleared for itself a sight I had not looked to find tenanted in the quiet surroundings of my normal field of vision. That room in which my mind, forcing itself for hours on end to leave its mooring, to elongate itself upwards so as to take on the exact shape of the room and to reach to the summit of that monstrous funnel. I had passed so many anxious nights while my body lay stretched out in bed, my eyes staring upwards, my ears straining, my nostrils sniffing uneasily, and my heart beating until custom had changed the colour of the curtains, made the clocks keep quiet, brought an expression of pity to the cruel slanting face of the glass, disguised or even completely dispels the scent of flowering grasses, and distinctly reduced the apparent loftiness of the ceiling. Custom, that skilful but unharried manager who begins by torturing the mind for weeks on end, with her provisional arrangements, when the mind, for all that is fortunate in discovering, or without the help of customer, would never contrive by its own efforts to make any room seem more habitable. Certainly I was now well awake, my body had turned about for the last time, and the good angel of certainty had made all the surrounding objects stand still, had set me down under my bedclothes, in my bedroom, and affixed approximately in their certain right places. In the uncertain light, my chest of drawers, 
dining table, my fireplace, the window overlooking the street and both the doors. And I take them into sleep.